For centuries, theologians have argued about how the sins of the father fall upon their children. Freud talked about the need for a father's protection of his children. And Jeffrey and Tobias Wolff showed us how a deceptive father can impact his sons. As children have to cope today with so many fathers in prison for crimes all the way up to murder, it's almost a public policy concern how this plays out. But what if a child didn't know, at least not until his 40s, that his father was an infamous serial killer who had never been caught or brought to justice? That's what Gary Stewart discovered about his father, who he came to believe was the infamous Zodiac Killer who stalked Northern California in the late 60s. Now it's the story that Gary shares with the public in his new book, The Most Dangerous Animal of All. Ten years ago, after being contacted by his biological mother, Gary began writing a journal chronicling every detail of his search for his father and his own identity. That journal has become the basis of his new book, The Most Dangerous Animal of All, and it is my pleasure to welcome Gary Stewart to the program today. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good morning, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about your childhood, about where you grew up and the people that adopted you. I grew up in the Deep South in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, and uh, w- was just a normal kid, you know. And and I remember as a youngster my parents telling me that that I was adopted and and that my that my older sister two years older than me was adopted as well uh you know they told us that at an age before we knew what the word adopted meant and so I guess it was kind of tempering on their part you know preparing us for the the days when we would later as a little bit older children would begin to hear and understand what adoption meant but you know, three years after I was adopted, they uh, had the the fortunate miracle of having been blessed with a, a biological child of their own. They they adopted us because they didn't think they were capable. Then you know, here comes our little sister, and so they raised us equally. Um, uh, we were all stewards, and. Even though my older adopted sister and I uh, looked up and, and tried to find out what this adoption thing meant, it didn't matter. We were raised as stewards. What, if anything, did your adoptive parents know about your history or background or birth parents? Very little. Um, you know, I was when I was born uh, in 1963, uh, soon after the state passed a, a closed adoption law, which took away my birthright and took away my identity. And so by the time um, uh, I was adopted, there, there, were, there, were no, there was no information passed between birth parents and adoptive parents. My, my adoptive parents didn't even know my biological parents' name. And talk about what happened when you were 39 years old and you were contacted by your birth mother. So I'm, uh, I've always wanted to know uh, my identity because I didn't necessarily look or act or speak like my family here from Baton Rouge. Always wanted to know, but again, records were sealed, had no way to search. I didn't even have a name. So I, I, I wanted to know, but I was not going to risk hurting my adoptive parents' feelings by searching while they were still alive. So... At 39 years old, 
uh, a lady from San Francisco contacts my my biological mother and says, "I believe I am your son Gary's birth mother," uh, which caught her completely by surprise. Right? I'm I'm her son, her only son. I am my um, adoptive parents' only son, and although at 39 years old, they're probably not so threatened with losing their son to a lady claiming to be a birth parent. But the, the potential harm that could happen by opening up, you know, the, the door to the past. So, but I was, I was, I was uh, elated. This was one of the happiest revelations of my life. And my first inclination was, let's meet this, this woman. And what was that meeting like? One of the greatest, um, bittersweet, apprehensive, yet joyous days of my life. Uh, feeling like I'm betraying my adoptive family, uh, walking down that airport terminal to see this lady for the first time, yet knowing this is who, part of who I am and, and part of what I wanted to know so that I can in turn pass along my genetic and uh, you know the family genealogy to my only son, Zach. So uh, a great day, still consider it one of the most significant days of my life. And talk about the link that led you from that meeting, from that encounter, to deciding that you also wanted to find out about your biological father. San Francisco was one of the few cities uh, on earth that I, I had never visited, and and I, I guess there's there's a reason why, and I never knew why, but I so enjoyed that first week with my mother, um, and and getting to know her and see this magnificent city, including all the surrounding areas in the East Bay and Napa. Uh, it's just a fabulous, magical place for me. And I, I just had to know. So this reunion with my mother completes one half of me biologically. And I told her eventually, I do want to meet my biological father. So that, 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 uh, that part of where I came from, uh, necessarily is what contributed to my desire to search for my father. What did she know about your father? She told me the first weekend that, that I met her um, that she, when I asked her that question, she had obviously prepared for this question, but it's, it's something you can't prepare for. Uh, you know, you, you, you ultimately hope unrealistically that that will never happen, but when it did, she straightened up in her seat and she, she, took a deep breath and she said, well, honey, it was a long time ago and I was very young and he was twice my age and I think his name was Van, but we were on the run because of our age difference and we ended up in New Orleans and one day when you were just an infant, I remember he took you from my arms and took you by train from New Orleans to Baton Rouge and I believe he turned you into the authorities of a church there and, and came back by train. And when he returned home to New Orleans without you, I left him immediately. Of course, this takes a second for me to sink in, thinking, what? Uh, you know, and I didn't know anything. This is the first information about my father. She said, and then, honey, when I left him, he turned me in to the authorities in New Orleans as a, as a runaway juvenile from San Francisco. So when the, the police picked me up, I turned him in for abandoning you, my baby. And all I remember 
is I, I was driven to Baton Rouge and given 10 minutes in a cold room with you uh, and was forced to sign relinquishment papers, and that's the last I ever heard or saw of you. How did you handle that news? The first thing I told her was, well, you know what, Mom? Uh, I've got the greatest family in Baton Rouge, and I have the most wonderful dad in the world, and I can't imagine my father taking me from you, and I just don't think I want to meet the guy. And and she was relieved. The, 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 the color returned to her face when I made that statement. Uh, but, you know, it only lasted for six months with me. I, I, the, the curiosity got the better of me. I, I said, you know, there's some healing in, in my reunion with my mother, so regardless of what my father did, I need to find this guy, and I need to extend that same forgiveness. I'd love to hear his side of the story, but even that's irrelevant at this point. I was brought up in a family where, where love and forgiveness are how you live your life, and and. I wanted to see this man and and tell him, eventually, thank you for leaving me there in Baton Rouge to where I could be adopted by the Stewart family because I've had the best life you could imagine. How did you begin the process of continuing the search, of allowing that curiosity, as you say, to get the better of you? So the first thing I did when I went back to California in in December of... uh, two after I, I met my mother in, in um, uh, June of '02, I said, you know what, Mom, I've had a change of heart. I really want to find my father. And my mother had, had remarried 11 years after my, um, her life with my father and myself. She had remarried. Um, in a twist of fate to the first ever African-American homicide inspector in the San Francisco Police Department. And he had passed away just a couple of years before she went looking for me. So I never got the chance to meet him, but he became quite a figure in the San Francisco Police Department. His name is Rotea Guilford. And so when I contacted her, she was first reluctant not wanting to bring up things of the past, but she saw the intent and the emotion in my eyes. And she contacted some of her former husband's colleagues in the department. It didn't strike me as odd because she had a relationship with people in the San Francisco police department. But what I didn't know at the time is that there, you know, she also knew that he, he likely had a serious, you know, record, including uh, her, her time with me that, that I, I was very naive, but it didn't matter. All I know is my mother was going to help me find my father. So in about six months after that, in the in, in middle of 03, my mother gets a phone call from one of her friends, from one of her former husband's um, um, underlings in, in, the, in the San Francisco Police Department, Internal Affairs Department, Harold Butler, who said, I found Gary's father's file. And his name was Earl Van Best, Jr. He was born in Wilmore, Kentucky on July 14, 1934, and gave me a Social Security number. But he warned at that point that there was information in my father's file that he was not going to reveal. It didn't matter to me. I had a starting point, and I had a name. My last name was Best. So I continued to search, and it only took a year and a half before I ran into a roadblock 
uh, or several. I found out that my father had siblings, uh, that I had siblings that my father had also discarded and abandoned and who, who were now living in Austria. I also found out that he was deceased and, and died in Mexico City in 1984. And I was trying to establish a relationship with my siblings in Austria, and, and my information just didn't match up to the information they had. So I went back to my mother one last time and, and said, please, Mom, ask your friends to help. I need to know what was in that file. He's dead. It's not going to affect anybody. They responded to her saying, please have Gary drop this thing with his father. What? is in his father's file is so heinous that it would destroy you and Gary both. Now, what a statement. Um, I, I had found out in that time that, that my mother, the reason they were on the run is because it was statutory rape. I found out that not only hadn't I been left with a church, but my father used to close me up in a footlocker because he couldn't stand to hear it cry. And then he abandoned me in, in the apartment building and walked away to never look back, and, and there was also some abuse involved. So what could be more heinous than that, I thought. So I, I was tired. I was tired of the search, and, and I literally, at, at their advice, I just gave up. And three months later, with all thoughts of my father pushed out of my memory, watching a cold case show on A&E, I see the wanted poster from the San Francisco Police Department from 1969 for the Zodiac Killer, and my heart stopped. My son looked at me looking at the television screen, and look, he looks at the screen. He says, hey, Dad, it's you. And I go in my office and pull out a photo, a photo given to me by the SFPD, claiming hmm. that it was an old DMV photo of my father. I had it framed and over my desk as inspiration to find this man before he passed away. Turns out it was his mugshot from the statutory rape of my mother, and I showed my son. I said, no, son, it's not, it's not me. It's my father. And talk a little bit about the resistance that you ran into as you try to pursue this further with the SFPD. The first thing I did was contact the... the uh, Sergeant Butler in Internal Affairs, and my mother, I said, okay, I know what was so heinous. I know what you guys are not, not wanting to share with me, but I, I found out, okay? So if, if, if this is true or if it's not true, I just want some, some help. I want some information. I will come to San Francisco tomorrow and, and visit with you if you make time to visit with me. Butler never spoke to me again. And... He communicated one more time through my mother saying that the, the, you know, tell Gary not to worry. The Zodiac case is solved and closed. We know who he was. Uh, he was a guy named Arthur Lee Allen. Uh, we've got his DNA. Gary has nothing to worry about there. And, and so I did some digging and found out that that wasn't the case at all, that, that Lee Allen, the case was still open. It was closed. Um, but, but Lee Allen... Uh, had not been cleared, and, and I found a contact name for anyone having information should contact Lieutenant John Hennessy in the SFPD, which I did. Um, and, and I started trying to disprove this and trying to place my father outside of situations that, that, that would have, would have um, exonerated him uh, from, from a su being a suspect. And the more I looked, the more I, I discovered that I could not clear him. And 
the SFPD told my mother, you know, um, uh, they were trying to protect my mother and I from this heinous information, but my mother told me she believed it was all about trying to protect the memory and and uh, of her late great husband, Rotea Guilford. Um, so I, you know, here we are today. Uh, I, I did I did contact um, Lieutenant Hennessy with the SFPD. He was the head of homicide at the time. I presented this information. When he found out that Rotea Guilford was um, was uh, the second husband of my mother, and he knew Rotea Guilford was actually an inspector on the Zodiac case, um, his eyebrow went up, and and that coupled with the balance of the the compelling information I gave him, he took the liberty to to collect my DNA to swab me to compare that to what they had on file for the Zodiac killer. And talk about what happened from there. He swabbed me in '04 at the end of '04, um, and he told me, "Gary, you know, I'm not supposed to do this. The case, you know, I'm not supposed. I've been, we've been instructed not to spend any more money on this case, but I want this closure for you. We got to know each other over the course of the next couple of years. We knew about each other's families. We had casual conversations that had nothing to do with this case. Anytime I went to town, which was only two or three times a year, I would call him." Uh, invite him to lunch, uh, just check on his father. Um, he said, we have such a backlog of current current cases that need DNA and forensic analysis done. Your, yours is going to go on the back burner, but don't worry. I'm going to do this for you. I want you to have closure for you and your family. Uh, in, the, in the middle of 05, he sent me an email out of the blue showing me the CSI form that he had filled out and sent to the crime lab director, Dr. Sidney Holt. And he said, Gary, I finally got the crime lab director to agree to do this, but please be, be patient. It's still going to take some time. Being confident that I was making progress, I, I shared that, that CSI form with my mother. And I think maybe my mother reluctant to allow whatever information that, that the SFPD might be wanting to prevent from becoming public about Rotea's connection to all this, my mother went to Harold Butler and said, Harold, Gary didn't stop uh, because of you and Earl Sanders. He went around you. I think, I don't know, Jess, I mean, I, and I'm, I don't want to be considered a, a, a liar or a speculator because I've, I've put everything in, in my book completely truthful as best as I could find. But that had something to do with it because all of a sudden John Hennessy, who I consider a friend, stopped talking to me. I believe that, that Harold Butler in, uh, notified Hennessy that he knew that he had gone against the grain and, and requested my DNA. And, and I believe that evidence was likely destroyed. I know for a fact that my father's file was destroyed uh, because my co-author wrote the SFPD and asked for my, my father's record. And um, my father's record was on Harold Butler's desk when Hennessy confronted him about not sharing that information with me. All of a sudden, it's been purged or destroyed. What do you see as the reason, then, that there was such pushback from the SFPD. What was the cover-up as you believe it took place? What was it about? 
without seeing that heinous information in the file um, and the fact that it was held in the San Francisco Police Department for more than 30 years, which I've been told um, indicates that there was a murder involved, um, the only thing I can, again, I'm just, this is what I'm thinking and, and I formulated in my mind. Rotea Guilford became a homicide inspector from the San, for the San Francisco Police Department when he and his fellow officers, including former Chief Earl Sanders, sued the department for racial inequality. And as part of that lawsuit, the, the, the uh, recourse was to make Rotea Guilford the first ever homicide inspector first ever African-American homicide inspector. There is and was a fraternity of sorts, um, Earl Sanders, Rotea Guilford, and, and they had very close connections with the uh, former mayor and assemblyman, Willie Brown. So the politics ran deep. I can only imagine if Rotea Guilford working the Zodiac case may have drawn the short straw to investigate one Earl Van Best Jr. And having pulled his file, found out that his current wife was once married to a Zodiac suspect. And maybe having cleared him at a later time, uh, something the, 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 the fraternity, uh, including you know Harold Butler, Earl Sanders, didn't want to make public. So it's easier to make Gary Stewart go away or, th or this record go away than, than the many years of wonderful achievements of, of Rotea Guilford. Again, that's not fact. I've had a lot of time to think about why, and why wouldn't they tell me? I, I just don't know. Is it your view that the case is provable in any way at this point? Absolutely. I, I, I think um, a couple of things. Um, there is somewhere in the files of some authorities um, some some real DNA. I know the San Francisco Police Department has, has claimed or now backed down on their statement about the uh, about the uh, chain of custody over the, the the markers they established on the ABC uh, primetime live special with John Quinones from 2003. They were real confident. In fact, they were real confident in 2004 when Hennessy swabbed me. That's the, the method they were going to use to, to clear me or, or my father or include him. My hope was that they compare it, it didn't match, and I could go away and drop this forever. You know, now uh, I spoke with Kevin Fagan of the San Francisco Chronicle who says now the SFPD says that they're not confident at all in that DNA partial profile. I just wonder if maybe Harold Butler went went to the um, uh, crime lab director and had her run my DNA, and if maybe the markers were really close, and and now maybe we really have to make it go away. I don't know, but I know for a fact there there's there's still letters, there's still envelopes, there's still stamps, there's uh, you know there there are other uh, uh, personal effects that that contain touch DNA. 
that they could they could establish um, a, a profile now. The, the technology is so much better today than it was 11 years ago when they last tried this. There's also things that are important, like the the the, the zodiac suspect list. I, I'm really really curious if my father wasn't one of those. Yeah, I've heard two numbers: 1,600 names or 2,500 names. I don't know, but I'd love to see that list, and I'd love to see how they were cleared or exonerated. Um, you know, the Zodiac said, "I, you know, have you cracked my latest code? My name is." He continually insisted that if you solve the ciphers, you will have his identity. And for the first time in 40 some odd plus years, I have handed the ciphers over with my father's name spelled out, written perfectly the way he wrote his name. And, and lastly, the connection to Paul Avery. Paul Avery in the San Francisco Chronicle, Chronicle ridiculed my father's illicit love affair with my underage mother. And yet Zodiac comes back and targets Paul Avery uh, as your secret pal uh, and, and indicates the age 14 all over the the uh, the card that he sent to Paul Avery. Well, fourteen was one of the things Paul Avery brought out strongly uh, in in his article about my my parents' relationship. He said he found love in an ice cream parlor. The problem is she was only fourteen. So there's so much evidence that back in the '60s, had this been known, uh, I think would have clo- closed the case before DNA. And I still think that there's enough to call this thing solved. Coming back to the original discussion about the file and what was in it, if Earl Van Best Jr. was not the Zodiac Killer, what was he guilty of and what was in that file? I have no idea. Um, any any other uh, unsolved... You know, the, to me, the word heinous uh, beyond the the abuse and abandonment of a two-week-old, uh, an infant, a four-week-old, and then the rape of um, a, a juvenile, 13, 14, 15 years old. And then I also found out that my father, prior to marrying my mother, he nearly killed his first wife. They were married uh, for for less than uh, 18 months, I believe, and he... His former wife was granted a divorce on the grounds of extreme cruelty and inhuman treatment. You know, I don't know what the definition of inhuman treatment and extreme cruelty was in 1959 when his first wife filed for divorce, but but the court ruled in, in her favor, and, and he then later put that on his marriage uh, license to my mother, reason for divorce, extreme cruelty. Um, what else is more heinous than that, okay? It, 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 it had to be something that he was never caught or convicted of because I have the electronic file, including the FBI file and his cleats uh, uh, rap sheet, which is all arrests and convictions and court dispositions. There's nothing more heinous in that file than than his uh, statutory rape conviction with my mother and criminal neglect of family abandoning me. There's something else that they knew and suspected my father of, but just couldn't prove it. If, in fact, you're right, 
and if in fact he was guilty of, of these crimes. Talk a little bit about how you deal with that, how that impacts you. Well, of course, now I've had uh, some 10, 10 years to to try to understand and comprehend this. And, you know, I, I, can't, I can't say to you today that I still fully comprehend and, and am at peace with this. Um, I was raised in a family where there, there's no criminal background, or at least that I know of, right? And, and, the, way, and the way they uh, handled anything would be to sweep it under the rug. If, if, if your uncle got, a, got a, a speeding ticket or something, you know, it's hush-hush in the Stewart home. You, no one's going to find out about that. So, not being in in the same uh, in the same atmosphere, in the same realm of understanding, of having to accept that your father was a serial killer, uh, I don't know if you ever come to terms with it. But but one thing I've thought about quite a bit lately is. My story is just not a guy who set out to prove his father was a Zodiac killer. That's the one thing that separates my story and my book out, uh, different than, than the rest. I set out in, in a search of trying to find my identity and trying to find my father, and it was a last-minute, oh-my-goodness, revelation where I thought the worst and set out to disprove that. I was raised... My story is a case study of nature versus nurture. And I believe that my father's life story is a case study of nature versus nurture. And my father um, lost his father to divorce at a very early age, and his father was his hero. Even in his high school yearbook, his senior yearbook, he said at Lowell High School, he wanted to be a minister like his father. And through the agony and, and the pain and the shame of divorce, left to be raised by a promiscuous mother, he communicated often to his cousins, his first cousins in the Carolinas, that he got so tired of hearing the headboard bang against the wall with his mother's many countless suitors. I believe my father was raised and nurtured to believe uh, or have no respect for women based on other men's treatment of his mother. It was very obvious when it came to his first wife and, and then to my mother and subsequently to his third wife, the, the wife who would have been his wife during the time of the Zodiac murders. He was a product of nature versus nurture, and so was I. I was raised in a loving home, and um, in, in both cases, my father and myself, the nurture we received won out. How does this make you think about your own son, Zach, and what does he think of all of this? You know, my, my son was there the day I saw the Wanted sketch on, on the television, and at that point I distanced him from the details as I tried to disprove my father was a Zodiac killer. But there were times in the development of my story, and when I decided to share my story, I felt like I needed to share this with him. And my son, Zach, has been, um, because of the way I was raised in the Stewart home and because of what I suspected as the investigator to find my own identity, 
my love for that little boy grew beyond what I had ever imagined a father could, could love a son. And I've kept him with me all the way. And I cherish him just as my adoptive father cherished me. And we are very close to this day. And, and it is my hope that what he's seen in his dad and my adoptive father will make him the kind of man that we would all be proud of today and the kind of father that we would be proud to be today. And finally, Gary, where do you take this case from here? What's next? You know, um, I guess many people want to know what, what the next step is. And I've got uh, journalists calling me asking um, what, what's the next step. And, and one of you, you know, that, that we have called the cold case inspector in the SFPD and he continues to say, you know, Gary just needs to come forward if he's got any information. Basically saying we're not going to read the book. We don't consider the book as evidence. So, you know what? They're absolutely right. I guess the next move is on me. And uh, I, I do have my day job, my my real job. And uh, as soon as I get an opportunity in, in the next few weeks or, or, or a couple of months, I will come forward and and I will uh, hopefully be accepted into into the uh, SFPD once again to to start new and present the information I have because I've I've come too far to just let this go. I've spent a fifth of my life sharing my story and not only do victims families but the rest of us need closure. Gary Stewart the book is The Most Dangerous Animal of All, Searching for My Father and Finding the Zodiac Killer. Gary, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 